I'm Adam, and you're listening to episode three of Inside the Scale. Thanks to everyone that has been keeping up. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Today I'm at Envoy, a company that has quietly taken over office lobbies around the world to talk to Russ Thaw, head of revenue and success at the company. I've actually known Russ for quite some time now, and there's a lot that I like about him. But what stands out the most is that as a leader, he wins people over with very little effort. And I think it's because he's incredibly down to earth. Russ is the first person to point out that he doesn't have all the answers, but he wants to get to the bottom of anything that he doesn't understand and surrounds himself with the right people that can make that happen. So Russ, Envoy's all over the place. Tell us more about that. What we're really working on is challenging the status quo of the workplace experience. And it all started in the lobby. Because basically what we saw is that as, as the whole workplace experience has been changing, meaning there's different demographics coming to the office, there's agile workspaces, there's remote working, the design of like the open office space is all changing, and you'd walk into these offices and sitting on the lobby was a paper and pen. Like an actual paper and pen where you sign into a logbook. But like the big, the Facebooks, the Googles, the Apples of the world, they've designed something nice for themselves. So we thought, well, wait a second, why can't we bring this to everybody? Why can't we enhance the actual experience of when you enter the office for visitors, employees? So that is where we started. We started with just the visitor sign in. And then with that, too, we've seen how much it's grown. We've seen that there's much more about managing visitors in your office and how visitors represent more of like a security Trojan horse into your office. And so we've grown more into this visitor management and how we're able to allow visitors into your office. At the same time, as we started in the lobby, we were talking to our buyers and they said, you know what? Nowadays, more and more packages come through and it's a pain in the butt to like notify people and they just they build up they take up so much space in the office and plus there's no way of like telling whose packages when they're picked up so we built an easy app you take a picture of the box it looks up it goes adam you got a package and you get notified you come pick it up you mark it's picked up and so we've streamlined that process too so that's our goal is identifying these more status quo experiences in the workplace and making them more delightful and then actually enhancing the value they bring into your workplace as well. You guys have around 130 people now? Yeah, we're, we're close to about 150 employees. Okay. We're in 10,000 offices. Okay. So we're, yeah, we're doing well. Wow, tell me about your team now. Yeah, so the size of my team is over like 50 people and it encompasses the sales org so when I talk sales, that means the lead gen or account development team, the quota carrying AEs, and I also own the success org. So what we define as success is your CSMs, your customer success managers, the support team. We even have technical solution engineers. And then I also own partnerships. And it's, it's been a fast-growing team. When I got here, that team was like two people. 
And so in less than a year and a half, really in the past year, we've grown the team to move at the same pace of the business. So we've gotten it over 50 people. That's, that's impressive. So, so right now, what are your values? What are your team's values? Yeah. So we talk about these a lot. And whenever somebody joins my team, so this doesn't mean a direct report. So this could be anybody under my org. On their first Friday, they actually have to sit through an About Rust presentation. It's a little bit of a welcoming to the team. It's a little bit of a bonding exercise that everybody has to listen to me drone on for an hour. And in this presentation, I go through my four principles. And what we really align the team around is, number one, the fundamentals. So it doesn't matter. I, I will use a ton of sports analogies. So people, you don't have to have played sports. But when I lead teams, I think a lot of sports parallels. And the first principle, I guess you can say principles or values, that I want on the members of everybody on my team are the fundamentals. And what I mean by the fundamentals is that at work, there's no secret sauce. There's nothing in sales or success that you do differently that you can't tell other people about. The people that are the best at their job is they do the little things well every single day. And the analogy I draw is in the sports world, you will have a dedicated quarterback coach, you'll have a pitching coach, a hitting coach, and all those specialized coaches do is they help you focus on your mechanics. Once again, there's no secret strategy that somebody's keeping quiet that doesn't tell anybody about. So I believe of any member of my team is the number one importance is fundamentals. Number two is what I call strive to be great, is that every single day counts. Every single day you should be working to get better at your chosen profession, whether that's sales, success, support, technical. And you can't be thinking in terms of sprints. I don't like peaks and valleys. I don't like sprints and stops. Is that every single day you should be figuring out how you can get better, how you get better towards your goals, how you get better towards your skill sets. One term that I've incorporated here at Envoy that we use a lot is what I like to call champions do extra. And I parallel this back to athletes once again, but I grew up in the Bay Area. And so Jerry Rice, who's arguably one of the best wide receivers ever, what he was really known for is he would be the first to practice and the last to leave. He didn't do some crazy amount of hours, but he was always the first and the last. And that just showed how every single day he focused on doing a little bit more. And then even, I stole this from a Tom Tungus blog post once, but he talks about the fact that if you improve 1% every day, that's an exponential increase. So we're not saying I need a 100% increase today, it's 1% on a daily basis. And that if every single day you come in with that focus, you're striving to be great. The third is teamwork. Can we go back to the second one for a okay, second? Okay, sure, Yeah, sure. I want to hop in. So does that basically mean that you are using sort of metrics to encourage people to improve every day? Or does it more so mean that you want people to, on their own, learn something sort of unstructured new every day? Uh, so it's, it's more of the unstructured approach. Okay. It's more of the mindset. So I take, so if you really think about it, one minute, excuse me, 1% is 15 minutes a day. So for instance, I'll give you a, a personal example of my life as I'm getting older. 
And so now I start every single day for 15 minutes, I'll stretch. Okay. And so that is like, that's like my 1%, right? Yeah. And so I chose to do it in that. And then I think also, no matter what, people can carve out 15 minutes to get better at a skill. If they want to measure it, they can measure it. But I think it's more of the ethos and the value that I want to instill in everybody, especially in a sales org. Because sales org, you get a lot of, oh my God, there's one week left in the quarter. Everybody, like, don't sleep. Go crazy. <laughs> We're like, that never produces anything good. All it does is burn people out and you do bad deals. Whereas it should be like, hey, you should be trying to hit your number every single day. Like, it's not like at the end of the quarter, people typically buy because humans are programmed that way. But that's like the mindset I want. Um, so no, I mean, that's your engineering brain that we get into measuring it. But for mine, it's more of a subjective, what have you really done today to help improve yourself? Okay. And then my third one is teamwork. So I truly believe at work is that if you're going to preach the fundamentals and striving to be great, the way you get better at work is on a team. Because it's not me as the VP saying, everybody work harder. It's really your peers. It's the person who sits next to you that's going to push you. And that what I really strive for is that everybody at a team is like competing with each other, but they will do anything at the drop of a hat to help their teammate. So it's not like a bad competitive environment. It's very much you do things for the team. You do things for the team first, but doing things for the team is like pushing each other. And that's really the best way to grow. So we always say the team first, and I could use a million different sports analogies about teams, and I won't bore you with that. And then the last one that I end with is integrity. That I think at work, it's not a perfect system. And I'll go to the sales side again. It's that I've been on teams where salespeople are cheating. And you know they've broke the system and they get rewarded and you say, oh, well, they're the top performer. You can't do anything about it. As I think then you break down like the teamwork. And so you have to have integrity. You have to make sure there's nobody cheating the system. You have to make sure you're holding yourself well within the team, within the company, and externally. Because what happens a lot, too, is that you get seen by the company you work for. So you have to represent the company. And so I'm a big believer in when you say something, you should do something, you should hold yourself accountable and strive for integrity. This may show how, how much I do not know about sales, but <laughs> how do you cheat in sales? <laughs> so, oh, there's so many ways. Uh, you could do a whole podcast on that. What will <laughs> happen in the world of sales is there's round robin systems, there's territories. We try and create rules and boundaries but no matter what, it's never perfect. No matter what, you're going to get an account that maybe shouldn't be yours. I see. You're okay. going to, and you could finagle that. And you can make it seem like it's in your territory. You could figure out a way to cheat the round robin because it's never perfect. And this is the extreme, but you could even figure out how to fake contracts and signatures. And there's many ways you could fabricate in the world of sales. And that is why, like, integrity is big for me because I will have zero tolerance for anything like that. Right, right. So it's interesting, Russ. Uh, you, on day one, people come in and you give them their 
On day five. On day five. They get okay. on Friday. So on day five, people come in, and you give them their, these are my expectations talk. Um, and you do that with everyone across every single team in your department. Anybody who works under my org, the purpose of it too is for them to understand, for number one, it's alignment. So I'll actually go through what is Envoy about, what is our mission, what is, what are our vision, so they all feel aligned. And then I go through what are the expectations I have of you being on the team. And I end with going through myself. Because what I really want for members of the team is I want people to I want people to be able to challenge the why. And I want people to really bring, like, I want people to be working with a purpose. And I want people to be open about why they work and what they hope to get out of work. And I have found that if you want people to be more open and challenge you, and if you want people to really bring their true purpose to work, I go first. So I actually tell them why I work. I go through all everything what motivates me. I go through my purpose, and I'm very open about everything that drives me. And then that way, I've basically made myself a little bit vulnerable. So I hope at any point in time, they can always come up to me and feel comfortable saying, hey, why are we doing things this way? Or why did you make that decision? And then I need to be able to answer that question. Mm -hmm. And that's another thing that I run my team with. If I can't answer why, maybe we shouldn't be doing it. I tend to hire, let's just say, more opinionated people. And what I've noticed is none of them hold back. So I think it's working. <laughs> and that's also what I think my job is, is just being a good listener. So it's not telling everybody what to do. But it's just listening to what all everything they have to say and then making the decisions. So that is another reason why I do it in that first week, is to start bringing people together and feel like they can open and share more. I started this tradition when I was at Box. Okay. And oh, when was I started at Box? 2011? I think I started there in 2011. And at Box, I, I was the first externally hired manager. And I inherited a team of high performers. And all the other managers had been internal promotions. When I walked in, they're like, who the hell's this guy? <laughs> they're like, what is this guy? I actually sold for a month or two. And then I inherited a team. I thought what would be nice is why don't I explain to this team a little bit about myself? Yeah. A little bit about my philosophy, a little bit about my management style. I felt it went over well. And since then, when I was a manager, I did it to everybody who joined my team. And then when I went to Intercom, I started growing. You know, the, the org got bigger. I still did it to everybody in my org. So I've just kept doing it like everywhere I've gone. So it all started at Box and sometime in 2011. Wow. So, okay. So the, present, the, the thing has morphed as we've gone. Yeah. But it's a tradition I've started. And you were able to do it with your first hire at Envoy? Yeah. Wow. Some of these people had worked for me before, and I made them sit through it again. Okay. Yeah. Because huh. I make changes. I adapt. And they all had to sit through it again. Yeah. Okay. I've had repeat performers. <laughs> I, I, I'm Re aware. Repeat, repeat, I'm aware. Russ repeat students, team. I should say. Yeah, you like your team. Okay, let's kind of open it up to the... I want to hear more about the whole organization. Mm -hmm. um, are you the only person that's kind of doing, are, are you the, how does, how does how you set your values with your team kind of correspond to what other leaders at the company are doing? 
Yeah, I think, you know, I haven't heard a lot of leaders who do what I do. <laughs> I, I haven't either. Um, I know Larry, our CEO, wrote a, like, he wrote a whole letter about, hey, here's things about me and here's how to interact with me. So it goes in terms of that. I don't think people are as open as I am, but we do have core values here. One of them is communicate openly. So I think everything I'm doing just aligns with the values we have in place at Envoy. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, okay. So, so Russ, let's let's go to the beginning. How did how did you land at Envoy? <laughs> okay. Yeah, and then I get into more of the tactical parts. It's kind of a funny story that Larry actually sent me a message through LinkedIn. Okay. So you were he being sent recruited me by a CEO. He sent me an email. <laughs> Because Arvin, who I had worked with at Intercom, worked here. And they were spending a while looking for a sales leader. And I think Arvin said, you should reach out to Russ. And when I got the in-mail, I saw that Larry had worked at Twitter in the early days. And so did my brother. So I reached out to my brother. I said, do you know this guy? And he laughed. He said he remembered him. And I said, ah, what's the harm in one meeting? And in that first meeting, a one-hour led to two-hour meeting. And what really attracted me to Envoy was I was really impressed with the buyer. And what I mean by that is that it sells into a facilities team. And what I like about facilities team is that they have money and they know how to buy. But what really stood out to me is I did a backdoor reference at Pandora. And when I talked to the individual there, he said, he kept pointing to Envoy on the the front desk. He's like, look at that. It's like, that's cool. People actually talk about, people actually like that. Because his job is physical security. So he's typically telling people to wear their badges. He's typically telling people not to leave doors open, to do the security camera. He's constantly nitpicking people Whereas Envoy was actually something cool that he could bring into the office. And I went, oh my God, here's a buyer who hasn't really been disrupted yet. And they have a ton of budget. And the other thing that stood out to me is that I've sold software and productivity software for a while. I liked that it was something that was visible in the office and you could actually touch it. Mm -hmm. And people immediately understood it. My eight-year-old son immediately gets it. Like he actually likes playing with Envoy. Uh, on an iPad, right? Yeah, it's on an iPad. <laughs> so I guess that makes sense. But I just saw the overused term product market fit. Yeah. And I just liked that it was something different. It sat in a physical space and you can touch it. And then I, and then ultimately I just saw the potential going on. I was like, wow, they've gotten to this point with mostly self-service, mostly not doing the traditional things. Imagine what happens when we actually add some fuel to this fire. So I went through a couple interviews, and here I am. Wow. Yeah, I've been here now for over a year and a half. Yeah, and so you've told us about your team now and the values that you have now. When you first got here, what was what did you do first? Oh, man. Um, so I think what was interesting in joining Envoy is there was an existing team in place. So like I said, everything that I'm in charge of and so I took on everything customer facing. And I think anytime you add in a new leader, I'll say this was for me, but I've seen this at other companies too, is that when you add in a new leader and they inherit a team, it might not be in the right, in the same mold that they would want to put together a team. So what I had to do first is really figure out 
what cards was I dealt, and then try and put them all in place and see if I can make a go of it, and then immediately start recruiting. So I had to immediately start figuring out basically who stays on the bus, who doesn't stay on the bus, and go get all the people as fast as possible. Because I was in a very fortunate position in that the business was growing so fast and that we just didn't have enough people and I still needed to put the right people on the bus. Um, so I spent a ton of time recruiting and there was no like process in place, infrastructure in place. When I got here, they were doing lead routing. There was an individual who all their leads, he had go to a Google sheet <laughs> and then he would like copy and paste it and like send it to like the two or three AEs that were here and they would follow up. Yeah. So there was nothing in like a sales force. Yeah. There was no like round robin. In defense of that person, it sounds like something I would do. Yeah, like, <laughs> like but I have no idea what I'm doing. It's your typical <laughs> do anything to get started. Yeah. But we were at when I got inserted, it was like, oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> like there was nothing in place. Right. And I actually had to like get in and start like fixing Salesforce and I'm bringing like it was just a mass grab people, grab help, and just uh, we always say it was like a rocket ship. And it was like trying to actually add the sighting onto the rocket ship like while in midair is what we were basically trying to do. So my And on top of all that, I was still trying to figure out what we do here. So I was actually getting involved in sales. I was talking to customers and building the infrastructure and hiring. And it was very tiring days at the beginning. So here's an interesting question for me. So when you came in, you, you must have had expectations about you know, what you would do, what the sales team would look like, who you would sell to. Did all that remain intact? Oh, no, totally. Everything you think, no. Yeah. I originally, when I came in, it was a heavy self-service motion. Yeah. And I actually thought this would be similar to Intercom. I'm like, oh, people are just going online, signing up. They seem to just get going. We just need to figure out where to add humans into the process. Like, ah, oh, this is totally what it's going to be like. And I thought, like, ooh, we could do this lean and mean. I don't think we'll need as many, like, people involved. Um, no, three months in, I was like, this is not, this, this wasn't what I thought it was. Not yeah. in a bad way, but the sale wasn't what I thought in terms of, I realized, like, oh, my gosh, most of the buyers are office managers or facilities and they're buying technology which they have no experience with. So they all wanted to talk to somebody. They like all wanted to talk to somebody. We needed to staff up big time to get that going. And I also realized too is that it seems super simple. You're like, oh, it's a piece of cake. You just like put it on an iPad, you're good to go. <laughs> oh man, this product is way more technical than I imagined on the integration side. There's more change management communication required to help people bring in their visitors. It's actually like really refreshing. It's, it's wonderful because I thought this was just going to be a simple like kind of point and click sale. And, um, whereas there's way more like the technology back end, the process. It's a very exciting sale. Yeah. But there was way more to it than I imagined. And I thought we were all just like SMBs. And we had companies like Volvo coming in and 
like, whoa, where are these companies coming from? <laughs> I'm like, wow, these are like Fortune 500s, like just dialing in and saying, hey, can I talk to somebody? Yeah. And I realized just the breadth of the market. And I actually realized it's more of like a bigger company problem. So yes, and I think that, I think what was also funny too is before I got, I was like, oh, I'm just gonna come in, I'll listen for 90 days, <laughs> get some read on the business. Oh, no way, my first week, I had to like just jump in, start making decisions because they had been without a sales leader for so long and it, hit, it was hit the ground running. But to answer your question, everything I thought it would be like, it did not end up like that. It's not okay. bad, but I think that's, I think any time you look at a business, it always ends up turning out a little differently than you expected. Okay. And, and, and just for the people, I, I didn't mean to cut you off, but yeah. just for the people that didn't listen to episode one or don't know what, on, what uh, Intercom is. Uh, Intercom is a customer messaging platform, and that's the company that you were alluding to that you had worked at previously. Yeah. Much different than Envoy. Much different, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I didn't mean to cut you off. No, so. no, no. That's okay. No, that's it. So what's the? what do you think is the biggest mistake that you've made while at Envoy? I don't think we have enough time. <laughs> <laughs> if you had to pick one. I actually... What I have found very interesting... And so I caught this mistake early. But when I was at Intercom, I was a first-time VP. So I made a whole bunch of mistakes because right. I had no clue what I was doing. Right. And then this is my second time, so I thought, oh, I'm never going to make the same mistakes twice. But the biggest mistake I made in the early days of Envoy is realizing those mistakes need to be made. Is that I thought, oh, no, we can't do that because it's not going to scale. And I know what happens if we do that now... I know like two years from now what that's going to mean for us. So we can't do that. We have to figure something out. And that was my mentality. And then we weren't doing anything. And so the biggest mistake I made that I changed like after three months was, oh, I need to go make all the same mistakes again. Because I need to just get us through like the next six months, the next 12 months. I can't be thinking three years out. I needed to just make some short-term decisions that I know don't scale just to like get it going um, so that was like the first one and I think everybody always says this but you always need to hire way more than you think you do like you should I then picked it up but in the early I was trying to make do with like a limited amount of resources and nothing nothing can add up for the fact of bringing some people with experience Bring some people, it's so key. Like you need to mix. You can't just bring in a bunch of experienced people, but you have to bring in some people that have done the thing before because it just makes your life so much easier. Because otherwise you're spending too much time explaining, whereas you'd rather just say like, here's your chunk of business, go do it. Like I'm just gonna trust you to go do it. And I can't have people, it's like, hey, well how do I do this? I'm trying to figure things out. Um, oh, and there's a lot more. <laughs> Say do, do outbound earlier than you think. I was somebody, somebody had told me that advice the whole time. I'm like, nah, you don't really need to do outbound. You need to do outbound sooner than you think. And outbound takes much longer to get going than you realize. That's a big one. Uh, my, I, there's a ton of learnings I had on the customer success side. It's been my first time running a success org. Yeah. 
and when I took over the success org, I realized the biggest difference between sales and success is that in the sales world, your life is a funnel. It's all about conversion rates and, and getting to revenue. Whereas in success, it's all about customer journey. It's like a reverse funnel almost. Yeah, yeah. it's like a reverse funnel yeah. and it's, it's a journey. And it took me a while to figure that out. I'm sure anybody who's been around success and has run success would probably laugh at me that I didn't know that. But it took me, <laughs> it took me a couple months to figure that out. Yeah. And that was a big one. And then also, I'm going to say things, I make mistakes I made in success that once again, people have done this job probably know easily, is also how you allocate CSMs. So I originally was allocating CSMs based on potential of an account, where that is much more of a sales mentality is potential. And then we changed to being more of a, hey, like we, I made the decision that they're now assigned by dollar value. So there's only like, you have to be paying us over 10K to even get a CSM. Then we have enterprise CSMs at a certain level. And we basically do a ballpark of like, you know, how much total ARR should they be managing? And then that's their book of business. Yeah. Instead, we'd be like, oh, these are all our biggest customers, get on this. And then we realize their job is like trying to jump, drum up new business. Uh, like, no, that should be the job of a salesperson, mm -hmm. not a CSM. So are those, I mean, are those sort of the same person? Could it be the same type of person that is a salesperson as a, you know, a CSM? Or are they completely different personalities? I mean, yeah. What's so? This is this is my philosophy. Yeah, is that I believe AEs should own the revenue relationship. That means they get the land and they expand. That means they'll do better first deals that are set up for longer term success because they know they get the subsequent deals. Right. I'm very much into you have an AE that owns that revenue relationship because they talk money. The customer knows that that's the person to talk money with. Whereas my CSM team, their focus is activating customers, making sure they adopt, and making sure they renew. So anytime there's a, hey, I want to buy more product or I want to talk money, the AE gets brought back in. And therefore, the CSM is not worrying about hitting a quota. Like they don't. And I think that breeds a better, I think that breeds the right type of CSM in this model because they're truly aligned with the customer. They truly are just there to make sure the customer is using it. And then if you really think too that if the customer is using it and they're happy, they're gonna buy more. But there, I think there's a different skill set between trying to figure out how to find an upsell, trying to figure out how to find new revenue versus making sure they're just adopting. And then I also just like that from the customer standpoint. So the customer knows like, this person is just here to make sure I adopt. That person's here to make sure I spend more. Great, I know how you two work together. Um, so that is my philosophy. And how does that actually translate to you know, customer success versus support? You're in charge of the support team too. Yeah, yeah. and so the, the way I boil it down is, so if you think about it, the salespeople are quota-driven. They're going after revenue. It's more of, I will not say in like a grand scheme, but you gotta be strategic, but it's more of kind of an activity funnel based role. The CSMs are much more focused on product knowledge, adoption, like long-term relationship. And then the support team is like first response time. 
So they're really there for if anybody has a you know anybody's coming to us via chat has problems, you go to the support team first. So support person is there. They need to obviously know the product. I always say talking to the support team is when you learn you learn the most about your company through a support team. That's why I love having like one-on-ones with the support team. I'm like, oh my God, I didn't even think about that. Mm-hmm. But their role is much more reactionary because they have to be equipped to like when people come in, you got to make sure they get a response in a fast time. You got to make sure there's customer satisfaction. And then they will allocate like, oh, okay, let me introduce you to an AE. You know, let me introduce you if, if it needs to go further. Is, so there'll be an escalation to the CSM if needed or maybe to a salesperson if needed. Okay. And then we even have one more role, <laughs> uh, technical solution engineer, where they have all the deep domain technical knowledge across everything. So therefore, too, like a support person, if it's something they can't totally fix, like what we call a TSC could come in and help them out as well. Okay. I want to go back to one more thing that you said earlier. Um, so you you said you came in and you took over all customer-facing roles. Is that a normal thing to do? I don't think so. And this was very important to me because I believe if you're at, let's call velocity-type business, where you have a self-service portion, if people come to your website and just sign up and start using your product, then you have to unify the customer experience under one person. And my belief because of that is that if, you're, if, if Volvo is in a self-service and they have a question, they're going to reach out to support. And if support isn't sales aware, I don't need them to be a salesperson. Mm-hmm. But right now they actually sit right next to the sales team. We're all trained on the same, we're all on the same team. So they're enough sales aware to know Hey, I'm having a support chat with Volvo. Hey, sales team, does, does anybody want to like talk to this person? Because that, in a self-serve world, that could be their first touch point of somebody in support, not necessarily somebody in sales. So therefore, you need your support team. You can't just like outsource it. Your support team needs to be sales sales aware, and they also need to be very they need to be very strong with the product because that could be your biggest customer's first touch point with your company. Mm-hmm. And also, I've been at too many companies where for the customer experience, there's a handoff when you know you're going between VPs. Mm-hmm. Like, your internal process should never dictate like the customer experience. So I think the customer experience needs to come first, and therefore I can always be focused on that. And I also, a huge advantage is I think there's fluidity between the teams. There are people that are, we've already, there's people that can go from the sales team to the success team to the support team. Like, it's easier to move all these customer-facing people as they have fluidity in their roles. And we also train everybody. So we, we're in the same, like, framework. We all have, like, the same enablement. Well, we have people carved for <laughs> the success in sales. But we all unify under one enablement leader. And I think it's very important for this type, and I've like been at too many companies so that's why it was very important to me and I do not think um, a lot of companies do unify all of these under one person so I, I guess the last question I have for you is knowing what you know now if you could do anything differently what would it be and you might have already addressed that earlier and, and don't need to go back into details but well I would I think the biggest thing I've learned 
and doing this crazy startup hyper growth maturity thing and is there's there's distinct differences at these companies as they start to grow like i'm not super familiar with the i haven't spent too much experience going from the zero to one million but that's just like craziness and then there's the (laughs) yeah that's nuts then there's the one to ten million and i think in the one to ten million is you have to make all the same mistakes I kind of said that earlier, but I just found like you shouldn't be worrying about too much scale at that point in time. You should be worrying about survival and you should just be worrying about doing whatever it takes. And I think as you approach 10 million, you've actually that you're like, that's legit. Like when you hit 10 million at that point in time, you really do have to start thinking about, wait a second, we have to put some process in here. We do need to think about some scalability. We do need some experience. That comes in. And then what I found in like the 20 to 25 range is everything you did to get you to that point is not what's going to take you to the next jump. Is that you have to basically reinvent yourself. And then when you get to like 50, it's like the same thing again. Like you just reinvented yourself at like 20 to 25. Then you got to reinvent yourself again at 50. And I think as you've, as I've done this journey a couple times now, is you have to still be naive. You can't just, you can't just take your big company lessons and all your battle scars and say, oh my God, I don't want these again. You have to just go through and do them again. You have to be the fool. You have to be the fool. Yeah. Like you have to actually be the fool again. And I think that's why we keep doing it. Or I guess I should say, I. I don't actually know a lot of people like myself that have done this hypergrowth thing numerous times. So I think it's once you've done it once and it's such a crazy journey, people are like, well, I'm done with that. Like, I won't go back and do that again. Whereas I just keep glutton for punishment and keep going for it. Yeah. <laughs> why? I mean, you can't just end right there. Tell, <laughs> tell us why. <laughs> I, I think at my heart, I'm a builder. I think I very much, I'm not a good big company person. My brother's a VC. It's like, ah, I can't just sit back and watch other people do things. Is that I love the building. I love the rapid pace. I love the craziness. And I love being able to build, build people, build product, build processes, build systems. I don't like inheriting anything. I like being able to build. I think that's what I love about this. And it's just so rewarding to see it happen so fast and the pace. So that I think I'm one of those those adrenaline junkies at work. Definitely not. I'm not jumping out of planes or anything like that. But I just only know how to move at one speed. And I just love, like, the hyper growth. If anything gets too slow, I just get too bored. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. And I guess just to go back to what you were previously saying. So are we talking about... In sales, you need to constantly change your approach. Or are we saying, in general, at startups, every specific block, you know, the 1 to 10, 10 to 50, whatever it is, are you saying you need to reinvent yourself as a company or you as a sales leader need to reinvent yourself? I think or both. I think both. Yeah. I think no matter what, when you hit those milestones, you need to look back across. Because I got this, given this advice when I was at Success Factors, it was one of the HR leaders, and he made the best comment. 
that in this game, you get three types of people. You get startup people, you get growth people, and then you get maturity people. You can have some people straddle, because I'm a startup growth person. I'm the maturity thing, there's no way like I do well at that. And then even like once growth starts, like that's not me. And that's why you need to think about, do you have the right people? And I think you see these people don't spend that long at companies because these companies change so fast. They just realize, ah, this isn't like what I like. And I think as a company, you have to be, that's cool. Like go back to the startup and you, uh, you need to make sure as you're hitting that next phase, are you bringing in like your growth and maturity people? So I think it's way more than just sales and like the way you go to market like constantly pivots too because to do single digit like revenue versus double digit revenue in a year, it gets harder. <laughs> so you got to make sure you got the volume and the transaction sizes. I think across the whole company, you need to make sure. And I, I saw like that was one of the lessons I brought with me. At Intercom, I hired very much for that startup profile. We grew so fast that they weren't really the best fit for like the next journey. Whereas here, I tried to hire a little one in front. It's like, don't go crazy, but basically hire a little bit of front of where I am so I can grow into the profile. And I think that's working out better hmm. in the longer term, but only time will tell. Um, so that is what I mean by that. So it is the people, it is the strategy. And I think too, like once you get bigger, when you're competing against your little like point, you know, your little peer competitor, all of a sudden you could be up against Microsoft, right? Salesforce, and you need a totally different strategy when you could be competing against people who just give your product away. Mm -hmm. Like so, you got, <laughs> yeah. All of a sudden, your enemies get a little. Well, enemies is a strong word. When it's, all of a sudden your competitors get a little bit bigger, and you got to change strategy. So yeah, you, it's, it's very healthy that you have to be constantly saying, if we were to start, this is from Intel, like only the paranoid survive too. Yeah. Andy Grove would famously get his people together and say, if we were to start the business right now, what would we do? Yeah. Let's not care about the legacy we're bringing with us, but what would we do? And you have to just like keep doing that. Okay. Because otherwise you'll prolong like your little startup ethos too far and then that's not gonna help you. Right. Or if you take your big company when you're too small, that's not gonna help you. You gotta blend it. Right. Okay, well, I think that's all I had, Russ. Perfect. Thanks so much for a great conversation. I wish you and Envoy the best.